So we're going to go at a moderate pace, and we are in chapter 8, and we're in verses 34 to 38. And this is one of the hard sayings that Jesus, um, that Jesus gave. And I think, honestly, it's been misunderstood by a lot of people. This whole section here, the theme is blindness. It's spiritual blindness. The crowds misunderstood Jesus. The disciples misunderstood Jesus. They didn't yet fully understand who he was. You remember the, the passage we looked at right before this. It's only been a few weeks. But Peter thought that Jesus was the Messiah, which he was right. He was half right. Kind of like the blind man in the miracle tucked in the middle there. He saw things, but he didn't see things clearly. He saw men like trees, upright, walking, but he didn't have 20-20 vision yet. He didn't have 1080. You know, it, things were pixelated. He was myopic. He didn't see the truth clearly. And so Jesus is teaching. That's what he always does. And the focus of his teaching is his mission, the gospel. You know, the gospel both exposes our blindness and it also corrects our blindness and gives us clarity. And so this whole section here, the theme, is blindness. And I want to make sure we understand a lot of people take this passage and they label it the cost of discipleship, and that's a good label, but they relegate it only to unbelievers. This is what you tell an unbeliever. This is how you evangelize people. You feature this, and that would be true. Jesus never recruited people with false promises, and I'm not going to do that either. I think that's tragic that a lot of preachers do that. They use prosperity teaching and make false promises to people that the Bible never made. So I don't want to be guilty of that. And at the same time, listen to this. This is for believers Jesus is consistently, consistently and repeatedly confronting his disciples who had already believed in him. I believe they were Christians at this point, but he's wanting them to get full clarity on who he is, what his mission is, and what it means to follow him. I'm telling you, I'm a church planner, and I meet people all the time, and they know just enough about Christianity to be angry. You know, maybe they've been misinformed, maybe they've been abused or hurt by the church as the institution. Um... And, the, and, and they're so confused on what does it mean to follow Jesus. Is Jesus saying, hey, if you want to be miserable, this way, follow me. That's how a lot of people take this passage and they miss something vital in here. So what I want to do to open this message today is uh, use, use an illustration. Okay, so um, unless you're a hermit living in a hole in the ground, you know that there's a story that's captured the world's attention, right? Not just locally or even nationally, internationally, globally. There were 12 young men, ranging in ages from 11 all the way to 17, uh, who played soccer in Thailand. And their 25-year-old assistant coach and them, uh, one day after practice, went exploring in a local cave there that was you know, a touristy, attractional place. They went into the entrance against the advice of some of their friends, because it was the monsoon season, when rains come unpredictably and flood that place. Well, they went in anyway, and sure enough, they got stranded. They got stranded, and they were in that cave for about two weeks. It, it got dark very soon. The rains came. It was flooded. Their escape was cut off. Uh, they were deprived of food. They were running out of oxygen, and they were running out of time, and they were running out of hope. Now, they were missed, obviously. Uh, you know, these, if you have teenagers, you would miss them after a few days, maybe, right? And so word spread. Word spread. And local authorities and even international authorities were doing all they can to cooperate, uh, excuse me, coordinate and cooperate this massive extraction, this, this rescue from the cave. But it was difficult. It was challenging. Um, so listen to this. The national coordinator for the Thailand cave rescue, that's actually a position, even before this happened. So you know those caves in Thailand, man, they're bad news. So the national coordinator for the Thailand cave rescue said the complexity 
Uh, this particular extraction was off the charts. Here's a quote. Check this out. He said, This is the most scary situation that a person could go through. You can't make a horror movie that would even compare. I've been involved in cave rescue for 30 years, and I cannot even think of one that is this complicated. And what he meant was they were two miles into the cave, and there was water everywhere. It was murky. The currents were strong. They were running out of oxygen. They didn't have food. It's crazy. They're trapped there. What can they do? So these teams all over the world, they're drilling down a kilometer through the side of the mountain to let oxygen get down there. To, to, they're, they're having 18 Navy SEALs went on this mission. They had to swim through the murky water to bring them food and supplies. Um, they had to stretch this cable, this cave cable, out two miles long so all these boys, when the rescue did take place, they could find their way safely out. It's pretty crazy. But it took a team of over 100 professional first responders and 18 trained Navy SEALs. It took them three days to get those boys out of there. Three days. And the SEALs had to swim that journey first by themselves in order to stretch, the, to stretch it out. And they, were, and, and they had to tell these boys. Now listen, here, here's where it gets interesting. So here's these 12 boys. They're young. They're scared. They're afraid. They, they're oxygen deprived. They're weakened by their malnutrition. And they're very anxious because some of them can't even swim. Try to wrap your mind around that. You're about to rescue these boys in the dark, underwater, murky water, strong currents. They're scared to death. So how are you going to do that? I don't care how many Navy SEALs you have. You still got to make these boys swim on their own to get out, right? So check this out. This path to get these boys out, it's two miles. Some of it has water. Some of it's wet, slick. Some of it's in the dry. Some of the time they'll be scuba diving. Some of the time they'll be swimming on top of water. Some of the time they'll be hiking, climbing mount, climbing uh, these steep, wet cliffs in there. But this is the path to freedom. This is the only way they're ever going to be out, be able to get out. So what would you do if you were a Navy SEAL? This, this is what the rescue coordinator said. He said the trust factor, because these boys were going to have to be guided out by a Navy SEAL. Somebody was going to lead them out. They would have to put on their own mask and, and take the hand or the flipper or whatever of this Navy SEAL and another hand on the rope and follow out. This is what the uh, coordinator said. He said the trust factor between child and diver, it's probably 90% of what gets them out of the cave. So you know what these divers did when they actually found the boys? This was their policy. They were absolutely brutally honest with these young men. They said, look... This is a bad situation. Most people don't think you're going to survive. There's only one way we're going to get you out of here, to freedom. You're going to have to trust us, and you're going to have to follow us. That's the only way. It's going to be challenging. It's going to be uh, difficult. It's going to be demanding, and it's going to be dangerous. You may even die, but if you don't follow us, you're not getting out of here. You're not going to be free. You're going to be stuck in here, and some of the boys were reluctant even to leave, I'm told. Some of them have to be given uh, anxiety medicine so they can relax and rest and not panic and drown on the swim out. So trusting the, the leaders was 90%. So in other words, if they want to be free, there's a path. They got to follow somebody. They got to trust somebody. It's going to be dangerous. It's going to be demanding. And it's going to be difficult. But that's the path to freedom. Their path to freedom was hard. And so was ours. So that's what this sermon is really about today. Um, I just have just really have two points here from this passage. So the, the sermon title today is The Path to Freedom. The Path to Freedom. Here's the two points. Two points. All of us have to consider, listen, whether you're a non-believer and you're skeptical of Christianity, you have doubts, the jury's still out as far as you're concerned about the claims of Christ. 
Whether you're in that condition and you're here this morning, or whether you're a seasoned, mature believer, you still need to consider these things that Jesus is teaching here. So the first point is the rejection that we have to endure to follow Jesus. There's self-denial and there's a cross to take up. And secondly is the rescue that we enjoy. Honestly, I think a lot of believers in the circles that I've walked in, they miss the second one. They focus so much on the first one, they actually miss. There's an unblushing, glorious promise here. You get to follow the Creator who made you. Think of that invitation for a minute. Anybody want to follow God? What a privilege. What an honor. Man, we so skip over that. Jesus is actually inviting fallen sinners who are unworthy to even name His name to follow Him. He's calling his enemies who were alienated from him and scorned him and mocked him to follow him uh, and to save their life. You know, that's the other part of the rescue. If you want to save your life, follow me. So that's the outline this morning, and I think we'll get through it. I'll do my best. I haven't been in the pulpit in a couple weeks, and you know how truth just kind of stores itself up, and, and I really want to get it out. So here's point number one, the injection. The, uh, the injection. <laughs> Speaking of pain, the rejection that we all endure if we want to follow Jesus. Let's look at this. Verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them. This is Jesus talking to his disciples and the crowd. So there's unbelievers and there's believers there, okay? This is unconditional, or I should say it this way. There are no boundaries in this, in this crowd, okay? Anyone can follow Jesus. He's indiscriminate in his invitation. And remember, this follows after Peter uh, seeing Jesus was the king, but the wrong kind of king. Jesus, Peter wanted a king uh, who carried a sword and waved a flag, right? A lot of people want a Messiah like that still. But this king carries a cross, and he has scars on his hand and scars on his brow. Peter didn't want the, the suffering servant. He wanted the triumphant Messiah. And that's why he said, far be it from you, Lord. You'll never go to the cross. This will never happen to you. And Jesus rebuked him, and this is right on the heels of that. So Jesus calls them together, and this is what he says. Verse 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. During the uh, Holocaust in Germany in the 30s, in the early 40s, there was a man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer who wrote a book, and you've probably heard of this book if, you, if you're a Christian who enjoys reading and enjoys history. He wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. That's the name of the book. Great book, not that long. You would probably enjoy it. The Cost of Discipleship. And in that book, he said this. This is a famous quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He said, A Christian without a cross is a Christian without a Christ. Say that again. A Christian without a cross is a Christian without a Christ. Now, man, that's just something to ponder on. That's something to chew the cut on for a little bit. Just to sit back and think about that because... This is for everybody. Anybody that would follow Jesus, uh, this is the lifestyle that you're going to live. Okay, this is it. We all have our crosses. It's not his cross. He, 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 he paid the greatest cost for us. This is a privilege to follow in his footsteps, to pick up our, our cross and follow him. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, a Christian without a cross is a Christian without a Christ. And at this time, a cross was much more than jewelry. Okay, it meant shame. It meant pain. It meant agony. It honestly meant defeat and weakness and suffering and affliction and trials. But if I could pick one word to encapsulate everything that the word cross meant, so shameful and, and stigmatic, it would be this, rejection. If you were to, to have a cross, you were rejected. You were rejected by society, you were rejected by the rulers, and you were rejected by God. 
Because the Bible says in the Old Testament, whoever hangs on a tree is, is what? Cursed. Cursed by God. Okay? means rejected, abandoned, forsaken, judged. So what Jesus was saying did not fall on deaf ears. These disciples definitely understood that, and I think we should too. And that's why the idea of a cross is right next to this phrase that bristles against us when we hear it. Not only do you pick up your cross, just in case you didn't get what that meant, what does Jesus say next? Deny yourself. If anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself and pick up his cross. So this invitation from Jesus to follow him, it's filled with rejection. That's the thing that that we need to take away from this. It's filled with rejection. Our own personal cross. You can either deny yourself to follow Jesus or you can deny Christ, but you can't have it both ways. Jesus, it's important to note this too, Jesus does not tell his disciples to deny themselves the basic necessities to survive, like food and water. And he doesn't tell them to deny themselves uh, medical technology, like a blood transfusion that might save your life. He doesn't say that. He doesn't tell them to do silly things, like deny yourself caffeine. You know, He doesn't tell them to deny themselves a companion for life, like a spouse or a husband or a wife. He doesn't tell them that. Other religions do. And I, don't, I wouldn't want anyone to leave here and mistake the claims that Jesus is making. He's not telling them to deny themselves those things. That would be to earn your salvation, right? He's telling them to deny something more essential and critical themselves. You see the difference? Not deny something for yourself, but to deny yourself. There's a big difference there, and I hope you'll come to understand what that means. But as I said earlier, Jesus never recruited followers with false promises, and I don't want to do that either. That's a theological phrase I've I've mentioned before, and it's called prosperity teaching. And I think when we hear that in the church, we probably think of somebody wearing a lot of diamond and golden jewelry on a, on a television a channel, and they're telling you to plant seed money so they can get a private jet, and we chalk it up to that. And that's definitely, that would fit into the criteria of, of what prosperity teaching is, but it's much more sinister, I think, and subtle than that too, and it creeps, creeps into our own lives and into every church. We're not immune to that because we want that. We all want to prosper, right? We do. Everybody wants to prosper and gain wealth and escape suffering and enjoy popularity and worldly acclaim and success. And when we start to dangle those things out in front of following Jesus as a carrot, there's a problem there. Because listen, prosperity teaching is making promises to people in the name of Christ that the Bible never made. And this passage is a really great, clear antidote against that, I think. Um, If I could give you maybe a, a slide to help with that. Prosperity theology says this, Jesus I'll follow you if you improve my life, okay? And by improve my life, Jesus will improve your life, by the way. Didn't he say, I've come so that they may have life more what? Abundantly, yes. He, he, Jesus made unblushing promises to us, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. But I'm talking about, that's why the little bag of gold is there, right? Your health is going to get better. You're going to have more babies if you're in a third world country and there's infertility rates. Uh, you know, you're never, you're never going to be persecuted uh, you're, you're going to enjoy health. You're never going to get cancer. You just rebuke those things. That, that's an element of prosperity teaching. But biblical theology says this, Jesus, I follow you because you're better than life. Do you see the difference? It's a big difference between those two. Prosperity teaching, Jesus, I'll follow you if you improve my life. Biblical theology says, Jesus, I follow you because you're better than life. And that's as clear as I can put it. For now, at least, we can devote another sermon to that. Uh, But it's prosperity versus adversity. Jesus never offered to be our business partners. He never did. 
Never. And if you ask questions like this, will Christianity pay off for me? Will Christianity work? You're approaching it from the wrong way. And listen, you'll betray yourself because Christianity, uh, from the pragmatic standpoint, it would hardly ever work or pay off for you in the way that a lot of people secularly think it does. Um, What they're asking is, can I still be happy and keep control of my life? Let me say that again. When you think that way and, and, and reason that way, you're basically saying, can I still be happy while keeping control of my life? Because Jesus here is telling us to let go. I went and heard Larry Kirk preach yesterday afternoon just to get out, take a break, take the kids, and he opened with a funny illustration. He said, you probably all heard this about the guy that was on the cliff. He fell off, and on the way down, a tree caught him, and he wrapped his arms around it, and the branches snapping, and he called out to heaven, and he said, if you're up there, God, help me. And God said, I'm up here, and I hear you. And what I'm going to tell you is going to be hard, but I want you to do it. Let go. (laughs) And the guy sat there for a minute, and he said, is there anybody else up there? (laughs) Right? That's what I'm talking about here. You know, Jesus is basically telling us to let go here. Let go of this mirage we have of controlling our own life. Because you can't hold on to that and follow Jesus. It won't work that way. That's not how Christianity works. That's never how Christianity works. You can either abandon your self-will or you can abandon your hope, but you cannot hold on to both of them. So what Jesus is saying is really uh, very simple. You can either get your identity by pursuing all the things that maybe prosperity tells you and, and gain the whole world and lose your soul, or you can get an identity from what Jesus has accomplished for you and by following him. You know, our, our true identity is not achieved, it's received. There's a big difference between those two things. So that's what Jesus is saying. You don't achieve this, you, re- you receive this. So I want to give you, I want to put this in street leather for you, in street clothes a little bit. What might it look like for us in the year 2018 to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow Christ? As Christians, what might that look like? Because I want to help you, because everybody in their mind is thinking, yeah, I get it, I get the passage, but apply this. I need application, Pastor. I, wouldn't, I just want to give you three. I could do 20, and you could probably think of 50. But I want to do three, um, to help you understand that maybe what Jesus is calling us to do is to stop worshiping money and sex and power and health and beauty and safety. And that's going to be costly because those are the rules by which our world operates. Amen? It is. And so what would it, what would it look like for us to pick up our cross and follow him? Here's just three examples. Number one, I have a friend, known him for a long time. In fact, he used to come to this church in the very beginning before his circumstances changed and he couldn't. And he, if anybody in here is a pharmaceutical rep, please don't take offense at this, okay? Not all pharmaceutical companies are created equal. I know that. And not all pharmaceutical reps are created equal. I get that. But the, the particular company that this, my friend worked for was very demanding. And he didn't know this going in. And he came to me for counsel and he said, man, I'm working like from sun up to sundown and I still can't meet the quota and the criteria that they're putting on me. And I said, what do you mean? What are you talking about? And he said, they're telling me I have to meet with, and I think it was at the time, eight doctors. That may not sound like a busy day for you to travel around and visit eight doctors, bring them food, promise them movie tickets or baseball games or whatever it is. Uh, He said, that's impossible, Tommy. I couldn't possibly do that. It would take me three days to do that. He said, and yet all these other people that are at this company, they're saying that they meet that quota. He said, I went and talked to my supervisor, and he said, look, yeah, we know. There's probably no way, but this is a dog-eat-dog, you know, line of work that you're in, and it's okay, man. Just tell them that you did. 
You know, just, just, you know, you know, you intend to, you wish you could. So just go ahead and tell them, yeah, I visited eight doctors, made eye contact, verb verbally, you know, promoted this product. And my friend said, but, but he said, so I told the guy I would think about it. He said, man, Tommy, I'm just torn to pieces, man. I, I, don't, I don't know if I could do that. How can I lay my head on my pillow at night knowing that I've built my entire career on a lie? And I said, well, bro, I'm listening to you here. I don't think I need to tell you anything. I think, I think you know what, what God would want you to do. And you know what he did? He went to his boss and he said, I can't do this, man. I can't. And he said, look, just do it, man. It's an easy gig. Just do it. Just write it in the paper. I saw the eight doctors. He said, I can't do that, man. I can't do that. I, I, I follow Christ. He didn't die on the cross so I could live this way. And so you know what? He lost his job. But let me ask you a question, okay? And this is, I'm getting ahead of myself with the second point. Who's really, we're talking about the path to freedom here. Let me ask you a question. Who do you think was more free after that? My friend who could lay his head on his pillow at night in peace, knowing he picked up his cross, he denied himself financial prosperity, financial freedom, right? Um, so who's, who's more free? Are the people that are building their entire life on a lie? They come home, they bring home the bacon, they provide for their families, but it was through deceit and it was through embellishment. Who's more free? Let me ask you that. So that's one illustration. Let me give you another illustration. That was about a financial cross, okay? Uh, let me give you another one. Relational, cro uh, relational cross. How many people in here know who Lottie Moon is? Oh, good, good. Nobody does, hardly. If you're a Baptist, you probably know, because they have a Lottie Moon Christmas offering every day. She was a, an amazing missionary to China way back when, okay? She was sold out for the king. She went to the remote, unreached people groups in China, and she began to preach the gospel. She had a particular ministry with Chinese children who were impoverished. They were in, in need, and they had never heard of Christ. And she spent her life there. But while she was there, she was lonely. She was single. She had aspirations and hopes to be married. And so she began to court a young man back in the States whose name was Crawford Toy. It's kind of a crazy name, isn't it? Crawford Toy. So this guy was a new believer. He was very intelligent, very sophisticated. Uh, his pastor got a hold of him, sent him to seminary, and they groomed him. They said, man, you're brilliant. You're going to teach at a seminary. And he did. he did. He was hired at a seminary to be a Greek professor, a Hebrew professor, a theology professor. This guy was off the charts smart in every subject. But he got a hold of some higher critical thinking which cast a little bit of suspicion, well, not a little bit, a lot, on whether or not you can really trust the Bible and believe that it's the literal Word of God and that it's authoritative and it doesn't have any errors in its original form. And he began to study and he began to think and he came to the conclusion that, you know what, Genesis is just kind of mythology. It's just kind of allegorical. It kind of gives you an idea of maybe how the world came to be. It borrowed from other ancient Near Eastern literature. And uh, these miracles, they're kind of more like moral lessons. You know, he went down that path. And eventually, at the end of that path, he denied every core tenet of the Christian faith. All of them. He didn't believe in miracles, the virgin birth, uh, the historical things about Abraham slaughtering, being willing to slay his son. And so he and Lottie Moon were, were writing letters. That's how you courted back then, right? When you lived in China and in the States. But he never said anything about that. So she left China, came back to the States, and she was ready for a wedding. And then she met uh, this guy that she'd been writing to, and she started studying. some of the, He was writing books, and very clearly, very clear became apparent to her, this is not the man that I fell in love with. What's she going to do? She's faced with a dilemma. She's lonely. She's in love. But, but now this guy has embraced liberal theology. So what do you do? What do you do? You've got you to make a choice. 
That's what Jesus is telling us here. Are you going to gratify yourself and move ahead with this? Or are you going to pick up your cross and deny yourself? What do you think Lottie Moon did? The, the fact that we're talking about her today here probably says you know what she did. She said, I can't marry you. She was heartbroken. She was, she was grief-stricken. And so she went back to China heartbroken but resolved. See, she didn't give up a family. She had a family already, right? The church is our family. She had a family. She went back heartbroken and resolved. And you know what? She was free. She was free. So those are, those are just two illustrations. One is financial. One is relational. Uh, but let's up the ante a little bit. I want to talk about my friend Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer lived in Germany when the... Mark, help me out. I always get this wrong. It's the Second World War, right? Thank you. All right. I'm not a complete idiot, just a partial idiot. When the Second World War broke out, when Hitler went nuts and declared war on the whole world and wanted to do uh, eugenic uh, cleansing in Germany, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor and a theologian and a philosopher, and he was brilliant, and, and he was a very humble man, and he had gone, gained some notoriety for himself as a Christian theologian already. Um, and he was afraid. He was afraid that he was going to be enlisted to fight in Hitler's army, and he knew he couldn't do that. So he had some friends that had connections that brought him over to America and sent him on a one-year tour uh, lecturing at different seminaries. And man, he loved America. It was safe here. It was comfortable. He was making a good living. He was getting all kinds of offers to teach at this university and that university. And then all-out war broke out in Germany, and he heard what was happening over there that Hitler's Third Reich and, and the Nazi regime, they were cleansing. You may not know this. Did you know before it, the Holocaust ever happened to the Jews, there was ethnic cleansing going on with the Germans? Yeah, Hitler went to every German doctor and he said, I want a list of all the names of people that are weak, that are handicapped, that have physical infirmities, that have mental illness. He forced those doctors to turn those names over. Uh, and those people disappeared. Did you know that? It started with the Germans long before Hitler betrayed his own people long before he betrayed the Jews. And then it just escalated from there and went to the Jews, and then it went to the church, and Hitler forced the churches to ban any Jew from being a member. Did you know that? Think, think if you were a Christian pastor in Germany in the 30s, Hitler was in charge, he was a tyrant, he was authoritarian, and he went to you, to your church and your leadership, he said, if you let any Jew be a member of your church you're going to disappear just like all the other weak-minded people around here. And they even began to rewrite the history of the Bible and they said Jesus wasn't a Jew. He was Aryan. He was white. That's not a joke. That happened. So here's Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He's way over in the States and he hears about this. And he's torn. He's torn like you would be torn. What are you going to do, Dietrich? You're a German. Those are your people. That's your church. You're a German by nature, right? So what would he do? Check this out. I want to show you this slide here. So he's over here and he wrote to one of his best friends about his affliction. He says, I have made a mistake in coming to America. <sighs> Sorry, give me a second. I must live through this difficult period in our national history with the Christian people of Germany. I will have no right to participate participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. And whenever he wrote to his friend and told him that, his friend wrote, his, his, uh, his biographer said this, that his friend, let me find it here in my notes somewhere, he said he did not understand that at all. Didn't understand it at all. 
He couldn't understand why in the world would a man lead the safety and the comfort of a nation like America, where you can lecture in a democracy and come back and be under the regime of a tyrant like Hitler. Why would you do that? You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote The Cost of Discipleship long before Hitler was in charge. Did you know that? He was just following what he believed already. He didn't believe he did anything heroic or radical. In fact, he wrote in his diary, this has been the hardest day of my life. I feel so conflicted and afraid I'm a coward. (laughs) Man, that's real Christianity. Don't you appreciate that and admire that? The authenticity and the transparency. So what did he do? He came back to Germany. He came back to Germany and he he came back and, and began to pastor a church and he started a branch of Christianity called the Confessing Church. They confessed the, you know, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and they said, no, Jesus was a Jew. He wasn't Aryan, and uh, you know, Hitler's not God. Jesus is the Messiah, uh, and all kinds of crazy stuff he was combating. He courageously withstood the Nazis, and he gave shelter to Jews. He helped Jews escape. And you know what else he did? I'm running out of time here. I could talk all day about this. One of the other things he did is he joined a secret conspiracy. This is going to blow your mind because Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Christian pacifist. He didn't believe in violence in any way, shape, form, or fashion. But he also believed that Hitler was a tyrant. And he said something like this. I know this is a conundrum. He said, I would rather do evil than be evil. So he joined a conspiracy, not a conspiracy theory, an assassination attempt on the life of Hitler, and it failed. And he was captured and he was arrested. The Gestapo pulled up in a black Mercedes with tinted windows. I know, even back in the 30s they had it. And they, took, they, they courted him off to prison for two years, and eventually he was sent to a concentration camp, and he was hung on the gallows 10 days before the Allied forces liberated that concentration camp. 10 days. And 30 days before Germany surrendered. You think, and pro- why, God? Why did you allow that? I don't know, but I know this. Dietrich Bonhoeffer saw his options. He saw his options. He could, uh, to thine own self be true, which is what Rome was teaching when Jesus said this, or he could pick up his cross and deny himself and go back to Germany, which is what he knew God wanted him to do. And he did that. And you know what? He went to his death. That was his death certificate. It was a guaranteed uh, departure to glory for him. And he did it, and he did it with gladness. In fact, Again, what we're talking about, but I don't know about that, you know, uh, peace and safety. Dietrich Bonhoeffer would write about this a lot. He said, there's a big difference between safety and peace. Don't ever mistake the two. Because had he stayed in America, he would have been safe, correct? And, and might still be alive today. He'd be an old man. He'd be alive. But he wouldn't have peace. And there's a lot of people, I can tell you, friends, and maybe, maybe you're one of them right now. You're confusing those two things, safety and peace. See, my friend that was a pharmaceutical rep, he could have financial safety, but he forfeited that and said, I'm going to deny myself because he wanted peace. He wanted to follow after Jesus. And Lottie Moon, she could have relational safety, but she said, I'm forfeiting that. I want peace. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he could have physical safety, but he forfeited that. And listen to this. Again, I ask the question, so who has peace? Who's free? Do you think those... uh, the Nazi, the Third Reich soldiers, have you read some of the accounts of how tormented and ripped to shreds their conscience was after Germany surrendered? Many of them committed suicide just for the heinous guilt they felt for what they allowed and did. Listen to this. This is, this is Dietrich Hoffer's, Hoffner's doctor. A decade after his death, a camp doctor who witnessed Bonhoeffer being hung on the gallows described the scene. Tell me if, if Bonhoeffer was free. Listen to this. The prisoners were taken from their cells And the verdicts of court-martial read out to them. Through the half-open door in one room of the huts, I saw Pastor... 
because I had a baby and I'm emotional. <laughs> Keep telling yourself that, Pastor. <clears throat> I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer, <clears throat> before taking off his prison garb, kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to his God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a prayer and then climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued in a few seconds. And here's what the doctor said. Check this out. In the almost 50 years that I have worked as a doctor, and he's being a little bit not deceptive, but he was in the prison camps, that doctor was. So don't get the idea. There's this lovable doctor. Uh, in the almost 50 years that I have worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. Man. <laughs> so when we talk about the cost of discipleship, don't forget, there is a payoff too, right? There's peace. These three people that I mentioned had peace, and I'm sure many of you could give testimony too of a decision you had to face, just a critical area in your life where you could either follow Christ with resolve and pick up your cross and deny yourself, or you could deny Christ. You could, you could deny what you knew to be true about following Jesus, that He is better, that Jesus is better. He's more all-satisfying and glorious. He's more beautiful and freeing and powerful and mighty than what this other little thing over here is going to give me. In the long run, the payoff is what Bonhoeffer talked about. You can go with cheap grace, or you can go with peace. And I think we all understand when Bonhoeffer wrote about cheap grace, he was saying um, cheap grace is accepting the message about God accepting you without the follow-up message of obeying God. That's what cheap grace is about. And that's what this passage is really about. And I just want to reiterate, all three of those people that I mentioned were believers. Here's where a lot of people mess up on this passage. They make this a condition. Now listen to me really carefully here. This is... A little bit of deep theology, okay? People make this a condition for you uh, becoming a Christian, okay? Um, let me give you an example. The Apostle Peter, he denied Jesus how many times? Three times. Did he, lose his, did he lose his salvation when he did that? No. What did Jesus say? I've prayed for you, Peter, and when you return, strengthen your brethren, right? So this, this isn't what makes you a Christian, is what I'm telling you. This is just the lifestyle of a Christian, is what this is. And Jesus knew these disciples were blind to that. They didn't get it. They thought this Messiah thing is going to be a triumphant. That's why you'll find them right after this in the next chapter. They're coming up to Jesus saying, hey, we, we want to know, can we sit on your right hand and on your left? Which is the two most important places for a king. We're going to kick this Jewish thing off again, Jesus. We're going to make Israel great again and wave the, the Israeli flag. That's what they thought. That's what they thought Christianity was back then. And Jesus is saying, no, my friends, put your flag down and put your sword down, Peter, and pick up your cross and follow me because this is about suffering and it's about rejection. You know, the Bible says all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's about accepting the hardship of following Jesus. There's a Greek word that the Bible uses over and over, and, and it's found in Matthew 7, 14. Many of you know this passage by heart. Uh, and I'm, I'm trying to remember which version, which, because I've, I've memorized it in the old King James Version when I was growing up. It, it basically says, narrow is the gate, and hard or difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Did you get that? Narrow is the gate, 
and difficultest way. And the Greek word is, is thlipsis, and it means pressure. It's used for squeezing grapes and making juice, right? That's the lifestyle of a Christian. Thlipsis, pressure. Narrow is the gate. It's tiny that leads to life, and there are a few people who find it. But listen, don't miss this, and this is the next point I want to transition into. It leads to life. <laughs> it leads to life. This is the unblushing promise of Jesus. If you want to follow me, pick up your cross and deny yourself. But listen, that's nothing. Any involvement with Jesus, even suffering, is a privilege compared to what you get, right? This, will, this cross-bearing that we do, he, he took the real cost. When we talk about the true cost of discipleship, Jesus paid the true cost, right? He faced the wrath of his Father and absorbed it. It swallowed him whole, right? Jesus paid the real cost of condemnation and guilt and damnation and being deserted and forsaken and abandoned. So whatever little crosses we bear, uh, are, are, they're not even, they pale to be compared with what Jesus did. So here's the second thing I want to talk about. Um, the rescue we enjoy, and it's going to be quick. You're looking at your clock thinking, what in the world? Told you I've been away for two weeks. So first point was the rejection that we endure, and secondly is the rescue we enjoy. Let me read the rest of that passage here. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me, for whoever would save his life. Whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory, when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So this is, this is where it gets really interesting because these are hard truths. They're sobering truths. They're challenging truths, and if you're not careful, those hard truths will eclipse the glory that's kind of tucked away here. In fact, I think the very reason that we see the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain, that's next week. I hope you come back for it. It's going to be amazing. The reason we see that after this is Jesus knew, man. This was hard for the disciples to hear, and they need to see who Jesus really is after this. So he pulls back the arm of his flesh and shows them deity, you know. Uh, but these are hard truths to hear, so that's why we need to remember the unblushing promises of God here, that you're not losing your life, you're saving your life. You're not forfeiting anything that's worthy to be held onto and grasped at. You are getting glory and beauty and power and, and majesty with Christ. You know, there's a, there is a book written by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. I don't know how many people in here have read it. That's an amazing book, and there's a really neat analogy. The whole book is kind of allegorical. And there's a ghost of a man, and, and for whatever reason, Lewis writes this book. There's a busload of people from hell that go to heaven to visit. I know it's kind of crazy. I don't know why I wrote it that way. But there's a ghost of a man that's walking into the plains of heaven, and one of the powerful angels from heaven walks out and greets him. And this man has just come from hell, and he loves his sin, and especially lust. And there's a little red lizard on his shoulder that embodies lust and it's seductive and it's whispering all these seductive promises in his ear and he hates it but he loves it you know can any of you relate maybe i don't know you love your sin but you hate it and so this angel walks up and he says hey do you want me to get rid of that for you and he says yes i wish you would i'm so sick of this thing and he says all right i'll get rid of it but i gotta kill it you remember reading this? And the guy said, oh, oh no, the ghost of a man said, I don't, I don't know if, it's not that bad. You know, maybe, maybe he'll be quiet. Maybe he'll shut up. And, and the angel said, no, he won't. It's just going to get worse and worse. And the only way you can come in here is if I take that lizard and I kill it. 
And he says, all right then, do it. And the angel takes the lizard, breaks its neck, throws it down on the ground and breaks its back. And suddenly this ghost of a man in front of him is transformed into this glorious being who's glorified in heaven, right? But it gets even better because the thing that this man thought he was sacrificing and giving up, picking up his cross, you know, denying himself. If you've never read the book, it's amazing. All of a sudden it starts to sizzle and change and and metamorphosize and it turns into the most beautiful, amazing stallion this man has ever seen. And so... He jumps on the stallion and rides off into heaven. It's pretty amazing uh, uh, illustration. What Lewis was telling us is the thing that you think you're losing by following Jesus, God's going to transform that. It's going to go from your master to your servant. You know, anything you give up for him is a privilege. And Lewis actually wrote after that, he said, when we destroy our lustful desire, we come not to the end of desire, but to the beginning of pure desire. Does that make sense? Let me help you a little bit. Let me read something else that Lewis said. Uh, or maybe, maybe let me read this first by Ray Orland. He said, when Jesus said, take up your cross, he wasn't compromising his grace. He was offering more of his grace. When we endure hardship for Jesus, it isn't because, boy, don't, don't miss this. When we endure hardship for Jesus, it's not because he's letting us down. It's because he's letting us in. You see the difference? Let me read this now by Lewis. This is so helpful. The more we get what we... Now call ourselves out of the way and let Jesus take us over. The truly, there truly ourselves we become. Our real selves are all waiting for us in Him. It is when I truly turn to Christ, when I give myself up to His personality, that I finally begin to have a real personality all of my own. Do you hear what these guys are saying? They're like, don't let this self-denial and cross-bearing scare you away because Jesus is making a serious promise to you. And He said it even better in mere Christianity. He said this, Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death the death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. And I want to close with this. I hope this is resonating with you guys. This is a lot of information. I'm sorry that that there's so much here. But I thought I would close with this because we're talking about the path to freedom And we're also talking about self-denial. And you may think, you know what? Christians must be the most miserable people on the face of the planet. They're they're always denying themselves, always saying no to themselves. And it must really wear on them. Well, I want to read you the accounts of two people. One was, um, he was an enlightenment thinker and writer. He was a philosopher. He was a historian. He was well-to-do, very intelligent, had a lot of worldly success. His name was Voltaire. You've probably heard of him. And on his deathbed, he wrote this. Let me get that out of the way. On his deathbed, he wrote this. I just want you to listen, okay? So here's a man who refused to deny himself his whole life. And in fact, this guy mocked Christianity. He hated Christ and wrote, wrote ridiculous things about Jesus all through his life. But this is him about to go into eternity, and this is what he wrote. So tell me who's free, okay? Who can, without horror, consider the whole world as the empire of destruction? It abounds with wonders. It also abounds with victims. It is a vast field of carnage and contagion. 
Every species is without pity, pursued and torn to pieces through the earth and air and water. In man there is more wretchedness than in all the other animals put together. He loves life, and yet he knows that he must die. If he enjoys a transient good, he suffers various evils and is at last devoured by worms. This knowledge is his fatal prerogative. Other animals have it not. He spends the transient moments of his existence in diffusing the miseries which he suffers, in cutting the throats of his fellow creatures for pay, in cheating and being cheated, in robbing and being robbed, and serving that he might command. The bulk of mankind are nothing more than a crowd of wretches, equally criminal and unfortunate, and the globe contains rather carcasses than men. I tremble at the review of this dreadful picture, and I wish I had never been born." So if that was what, <laughs> refusing to do what Jesus is calling us to do here, led you, that sounds pretty bleak, doesn't it? Now let me give you the picture of a man named T.B. Uh, Larimore in his last days, who was born in abject poverty, followed Christ, and became a preacher, and he's on his deathbed. Listen to what he said. This is the man who denied himself, picked up his cross, and followed Christ. My faith has never been stronger. My hope has never been brighter. My head has never been clearer. My heart has never been calmer. My life has never been purer. I love all. I hate none. My love for some lifts my soul into the realm of the sublime. I'm willing to die today. I'm willing to live a thousand years to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. My friends are dearer to me. Association with them is sweeter to me. My sympathy for suffering souls is stronger. My love for all the pure, the true, the beautiful, the good, and the some sublime from the bud, the, bo the blossom, the babe, up to him from all, whom all blessings flow, is truer, tenderer, sweeter than ever before. I sleep soundly, dream sweetly, and rejoice forevermore. Man, that's a lot better than the other one, isn't it? <laughs> Don't you think? It reminds me of the song, No Guilt in Life, No Fear in Death. This is the power of Christ in me. So just remember this, there's, there's the rejection that we have to endure, but there's also the rescue that we get to enjoy. And remember, we are following in the path of somebody else who's gone before us. If you came to Jesus and he demanded you follow him and you pick up a sword or you pick up a flag, you may be a little bit suspicious. You, want, you, you may want to negotiate the terms of your contract with him. But listen, remember the kind of king we're coming to. This is a king who has holes in his hands he has scars underneath his crown, and he has marks on his back where his cross, where he bore that cross on his own. He condescended in an unspeakable act from the glories and the comforts of heaven. And he came down to earth, crawled inside a human body, subjected himself to time and space, and allowed himself to be hung on a cross. That's the king we come to. Listen, you're not going to be suspicious of that king. You're not going to negotiate your, your terms of service with him. You're going to fall on your face and say, command me, I'm yours right? This is the king that also promises life more abundant, joy unspeakable and full of glory. These are the unblushing promises of Jesus. That's the king on a cross. This is not like any king that we've ever heard of before. This is a king not sitting on a throne, but hanging on a cross. Do you know him? Have you counted the cost of following him? Listen, closing with this application, a little bit of homework here. Are there areas in your life where you are not denying yourself. You're not picking up your cross and following after Jesus. What is it? Is it in your marriage? Is it at your job? Is there some kind of relational compromise? Is it with purity? What is it? What areas of your life are you refusing to, to pick up Jesus' cross and follow Him into rejection and shame, knowing that His rescue, His grace, is sweeter than whatever sacrifice you make? I would challenge you this week. 